Okay, Auntie, this. tell us which books you have in front of you. Oh, Yiddish slang and idioms, mm -hmm. a dictionary. Mm -hmm. It goes Yiddish, English, English, Yiddish. Okay. And what's the other one? And this is the story of Yiddish, how a mishmash of languages saved the Jews. My favorite Yiddish verb. What is? Which I believe is our birthright. Kvetch. Oh, kvetch. Verb, yes, to complain. Kvetch. Yeah. It's just a fun word yep. to say. A lot of Yiddish words, I think, are fun. Oh, there's so much fun. I love them. I love the language. Hey, yum's the word. Haven't you heard? Yum's the word. It was started by a bird. My name is Robin. And her hair has lots of curls. Actually, I blow it out a lot. Two stories, some awkward. Like wedding the bed next to your boyfriend. Pretty funny and absurd. Like your boss tickling your side boob. So welcome all you nerds. And cool people, too. This is for everyone. Except kids. Yum's the word. Happy New Year! Or to all of my fellow Hebes, Lashana Tova. Welcome to Yum's the Word. I am Robin Gelfenbein. On today's show, we are going to talk religion. Why? Because the Pope's coming to town. Actually, he's coming Thursday night, which is the night of our next show. And I hope I don't get stuck in traffic. See, I'm kvetching already. Anyway, we actually have a great story about Pope John Paul on today's show. But first, we have Ryan Paulson with his story about how he is often mistaken for being a Mormon. Well, sometimes uh, people think I'm Mormon. <laughs> and uh, I told this story at another show, and I, when I said that, someone yelled out, It's your hair! <laughs> it might be the hair. It's, it's a lot of things, actually, I think. But I, I used to live in uh, well, this neighborhood. It was right, this building was right across from a Mormon church. Yeah, I'm just going to lower this stuff. Let's see you guys. Um, so I used to live right across the street from this Mormon church, and because there aren't a lot of Mormon churches, churches in New York City, I would use it as a landlord, you know, so if someone asked me where I live, I would say, oh, I live by the Mormon church, until my friend pointed out, if you say, I live by the Mormon church, it can sound like I live by the Mormon church. Um, but in general, I think now is a good time to be a Mormon, if you were a Mormon. Like, Mitt Romney came in second place for president. campaign. You would see all these posters and ads on tops of cabs that it was like the I'm a Mormon campaign. Do you see it? It was like, it would be a picture of someone who appeared to be kind of like regular. And, uh, and then it would say in big letters next to their head, it would say, I'm a Mormon. But if you weren't looking at it, if you just saw it on the side of your eye, at first you could swear it said, I'm a Mormon. So you'd see all these ads, you'd be like, I'm a Mormon? And then my favorite one was, they were all over there. I saw one in Times Square. I saw a lot, a lot of taxi cabs. I think they had like magazines. My favorite was one where they were clearly trying to get like 
people from different. To prove there was a lot of diversity in the Mormon church, which there totally isn't. So they found like the one black Mormon are like, you have to be an anatomist. But my, this is my favorite one. They were like, we gotta, we gotta touch everybody. So there's a picture of a guy, and he has like a leather glove on, and he has like a falcon on his arm. He's a Mormon falconer. Which has gotta be like a group of one, right? He's a Mormon falconer, and of course it says like, I'm a Mormon on the side. And I feel like, who are they trying to reach? Somewhere out there, there's some guy who's like training his birds, and you can see that out and be like, I could be a Mormon. I wouldn't be alone. Now fly, um, I, I actually, I don't like Mormons. I'll just be honest with you. And I think part of the reason is because I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian church. So basically, I think I kind of grew up like a Mormon, which is probably why I, you know, it's a little bit of self-hatred. They, they remind me of what I used to be. I mean, growing up in the Pentecostal church, it was a um, hardcore Christian fundamentalist. And it was basically like being a Mormon because they weren't allowed to have sex or alcohol or logic. <laughs> but they would, they would actually warn us about the Mormon church. Because as crazy as we were, we thought the Mormons were the crazy ones. <laughs> and the pastor would literally say, like, everybody, I just want you to know, you got to be careful for the Mormons. They're in a cult. <laughs> now, everybody go back to speaking tongues. <laughs> so, um, there, there were these people, like I said, I lived in this building across the street from the Mormon church. And um, these people that I would see in the hallway, you know, just... I didn't know their names, but I somehow knew them well enough to know their dog's name, which feels like a particularly New York thing to me. Um, so I just see them coming over, my wife and I, and, uh, and we would say hi to them, you know, and then we noticed they weren't really that excited to see us, right? And, and, and we didn't know why, but they would say hello in that, like, thinly veiled disgust. And until my wife said, I bet you think we're Mormon. <laughs> And these people, I, I, I knew a little bit about them because they were, we were reading the paper one day and we saw they were profiled in like the, the New York Times real estate section for a Habitats thing, and just showing their apartment, and they're New Yorker cartoonists. So they were really like, I don't know, sophisticated and worldly people, and they looked at us and thought, oh, look at those fucking worlds. <laughs> and, and it turns out it's very hard to let someone know you're not Mormon if they think you're Mormon, like just an and I, like, I needed my own I am not a Mormon campaign. I've got pictures of me in big letters that say, I'm not a Mormon. <laughs> and my first reaction when I find out that they think I'm Mormon is to be like, what? They think I'm Mormon? That's ridiculous. They don't even know me. Let me knock on their door and introduce myself. <laughs> I mean, they think I'm Mormon, I'm not, it just, it shouldn't matter. I just see them coming and going once or twice a week. But that's what bothers me, is because they, they think that I am what I used to be, you know? <laughs> like a religious fanatic. And I spent so many years trying to separate myself from the church, and to have these, like, these sophisticated people who are, I don't know, worldly and cultured, to look at me like I'm the religious nut, it, it drives me. <laughs> Until one day, I'm, I'm walking in a completely different part of the city. Nowhere near the building that I live with these people, right? In the same building. And 
different neighborhood. I was walking down the street and I see them coming down the street. It's really random and just a weird coincidence. And I'm thinking, oh God, this is going to be so awkward because it's always awkward when I see them. And I have this problem, which is probably why people think I'm morbid, of when I'm uncomfortable, I make myself be like extra outgoing to compensate for the uncomfortableness. So, because I feel like if I take the bull by the horns, it'll make it better than just like reacting awkwardly. Um, proactive awkwardness is what I usually settle on. So they're coming down the street, and they're, they're like crossing on the cross, like there's no way to turn, like it's inevitable that we're on a crash course with each other. So as they get closer, I say, hey guys, how are you doing, you know? And, uh, and the woman jumps back, right? Like I'm some Mormon mother. <laughs> she like jumps back, and then, and then she jumps back, and then I jump back, because she's jumped back, because she's taken aback, and like we're both taken aback and forth. And then, I, and then I'm in this awkward position because they clearly don't recognize me. She and her and her partner are standing there, and I, I feel like I have to justify having said hello, which is strange, right? But I, like, I had to tell them that I knew them from somewhere, and I wasn't some crazy morbid on the loose. <laughs> so what I wanted to say was, I'm, I'm, I'm your neighbor, so this shouldn't be weird for me to say hello, and I'm not even Mormon, so please don't look at me with all that disgust, but it was like a clogged pipe, like on all the words would come out. It was, I was so flustered. So all that came out was, <laughs> neighbors. <laughs> and then the woman just looks at me like, oh my god, what's wrong with this man? And then I thought, oh my god, that's not enough. But they, don't, they still don't know who I am, so I had to like prove that I knew them. So I looked down at their dog, and I said the name of the dog. I said, ha ha ha, And they looked at me like, this poor man. <laughs> and I walked off. <laughs> And then a couple weeks later, my wife actually, we found the blog of, of this woman cartoonist, where she had posted this cartoon. And you won't be able to, to see this from, from the state, but I'll just kind of hold it up and show it. It says, suggested alternate functions for the closed door button on my elevator, right? Which is, of course, also my elevator, since we lived in the same building. And she suggests that sometimes she wonders what it would be like if the closed door button was a gun to kill your neighbor. If the closed door button was a guillotine to chop your neighbor's head off. Or, or it could be the closed door button could be a electrocute your neighbor. And I saw this. And I was so relieved. Because I thought, she doesn't hate me because she thinks I'm bored. She hates me because I'm her neighbor. <laughs> and if there's one thing I ask for in life, it's to, just to be hated for what I am, <laughs> not what I used to be. That was Ryan Paulson. You can find Ryan on Twitter at HuskyBoyRyan. Speaking of Mormons, you know, earlier this year, I dated a guy who's a former Mormon, and I called him a foreman. I love portmanteaus. Portmanteau. P-O-R-T-M-A-N-T-E-A-U. Portmanteau. A portmanteau is derived from French. It is a word formed by merging the sounds and meanings of two different words, such as adorkable, which is a word that I came up with many years ago, well before the new girl laid claim to it just saying. Now next up we have Auntie dropping some more Yiddish knowledge on your tukuses. Take it away, Auntie. Fablungen. I love that word, Fablungen. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> it's 
it's almost worse than being sebeveled. What is it? Sebeveled is like you're all messed up. Like if I get to school and I left everything in my car, I go, oh, for God's sake. I'm so sebeveled, I didn't know what I was doing this morning. You know, running around. But I felt blunging. Forget it. You are really a disaster. Hi! Oh, I love Yiddish. Auntie and I actually talked about some of her other favorite Yiddish words that you can see on video on our site, yumsthewordshow.com slash auntie. Now, our next storyteller is a lovely Irish lass named Fiona Walsh. In this story, she tells us about her mother's passionate pursuit of the Pope. Alliteration. Uh, yeah, I think they got it. Thank you, Robin. I mean, you have to rub the lucky shamrock, right, before you get up on stage as part of the whole experience of being here. Um, How many people are Irish? And by Irish, I mean off the boat. (laughs) Two. How many people are Irish by injection? Means like you got with other people who are from Ireland. Okay. And how many people are Irish by association? You hang out with us because we drink a lot. Anybody? Okay. Well... One of the main things that you need to know about Ireland was back in the, well, truthfully up until maybe 10 years ago, there were only two two of the most important pictures hung in Ireland. One of them was of Jesus, or the Sacred Heart. Um, He was sort of blonde and blue-eyed, and he had his chest wide open with a heart surrounded by a crown of thorns and a face that went like, look what you did to me. that hung in every, every house almost in the south of Ireland. And the second picture was of the Pope. And the Pope, um, and it's hard to imagine now in these very modern days, but the Pope was actually revered back in Ireland and it was the time when people listened to the Catholic Church. Remember those days? <laughs> and, you know, people paid attention when priests said, you don't have to wear condoms and you, you, you shouldn't take the pill and you can ride your wife whenever you like and make loads of babies, especially boys. We need lots of them. Um, But in 1979, it was announced that the Pope was going to come to Ireland for the first time. And this was huge. This was like having the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and, I don't know, One Direction all rolled into one (laughs) coming to visit Ireland. And he was going to make three stops. He was going to stop in Dublin, Galway and Limerick. Now, for a lot of people, this was exciting. Um, first of all, it was almost declared a national holiday. So factories closed, businesses shut down, schools were closed. It wasn't so exciting to me because um, in my eyes, the Pope uh, lacked some of the qualities of idol worship. He wasn't good looking and he didn't play tennis. And there were the two things for, for me to, to uh, be attracted to somebody back in the day. But nevertheless, I was very excited to get to uh, take the day off school. And being an only child in a very strict Roman Catholic family meant that, you know, my parents were very, very excited about the arrival of the Pope. So... <clears throat> We set off one day, I can't remember, I think it was May or June. We set off one day, um, the Blessed Trinity of Rossgrave, where I'm from, my mother, um, my father and myself, on our way on a train to Limerick to see the Pope. And as any good Irish person knows, uh, a day out is not complete without the picnic 
and the picnic consisted in Ireland because back in the day there weren't really like road stop cafes and there weren't um, food trucks and food stalls like there are now. So people brought their food with them. So you packed a, a picnic and the picnic would have been a flask of tea maybe or some ham sandwiches or something like that. You brought them with you anyway on the road. So we set off and uh, we wound up in Limerick at a giant football stadium. And there were probably about 20,000 people at this uh, event. And you had to stop on the way to pick up your paraphernalia for listening to the Pope because you just couldn't walk into the field with your flask of tea. You had to have your Pope paraphernalia. And it consisted of a Pope stool, uh, which was like a small camper seat that you folded up. And a periscope, or what came to be known as a poposcope. <laughs> and the periscope or poposcope was just a cardboard box with two mirrors in it, but it was an indication of how far away the Pope was in the actual field because everybody was peering at him through this poposcope. So anyway, we had a bit of a mass and there was a bit of a papal blessing and there were some songs and people waving their arms. But for the most part, none of us could really see the Pope and we could barely hear him. I mean, he had a very thick Polish accent anyway, because it was John Paul II. Did I mention that? It was John Paul II. So anyway, we sat through it and we listened and I turned to one stage and was like, I can't understand a word he's saying, can you? And no, 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 it doesn't matter, we're here, we're with the Pope, it's all good. And there comes a moment in your life where you realize that your parents are really not just your parents, but other beings, you know? <laughs> not, not just your mother and father, not the people who feed you and clothe you and look after you, but they're just kind of supernatural. And that happened to me uh, at this event. So I'm sitting there, and the Pope, of course, is wrapping up. He's given us all our blessings, and he's sending us on our way. And he's getting into a helicopter and taking off to go to his next location. And out of the blue, or from nowhere, and the, the helicopter is rising up and you know taking off. It's kind of circling overhead. And out of the blue, I see my mother rise like she has been possessed by an ecstatic vision. She takes up out of the Pope's stool and takes off running in the direction of the helicopter. And I'm like, what, what, what's going on? Where's Mammy going? I don't understand. And she's possessed by a zealotry, unmatched by Osama bin Laden. And there's a big ditch. It's about four feet wide. There's a big ditch in the middle of the field, a drain or ditch, I think we call them in Ireland. And my mother is a small woman and not very athletic. But I watch her, I watch her from about 10 feet back. And she's just in slow motion. She's running and running and running. And she clears this four feet wide ditch in an effort to run after the helicopter. Now, I'm chasing my mother. My father is sitting back, probably finishing off his ham sandwich. But I'm chasing my mother because I'm, I'm 10 years of age. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. She's scaring me in a way. And I run after her and I get to the ditch. I can't even leap it because it's so wide. And I, I kind of maneuver around and across and I find my mother's shoe, which she has left behind in the side of the ditch. So now she's a shoeless Irish woman <laughs> running after a Polish man in a helicopter. <laughs> so I'm like, 
I'm screaming after her, Mammy, Mammy, your shoe, your shoe. But she's oblivious and she's waving up at the helicopter and she's so excited and everything is fantastic. Anyway, in the milieu of it all and the craziness, I lose my mother because people are surrounded. There wasn't, she wasn't the only person running after the Pope, by the way. There were all lots of other people chasing the helicopter. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know what my mother was thinking. Was she thinking like Pope John had just go, oh, look, there's Mary, set the helicopter down. We'll go have a cup of tea with her. <laughs> anyway, I lose my mother. I kind of ma 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 ramble back to, to my dad, who's you know, finishing up his, his picnic. And I'm like, well, we have no choice but to make our way back to the train station. So we, you know, I'm carrying the shoe. We meander back to the train station. And now there's about four or 5,000 people at Limerick train station. And there's really not a lot of space there. It's almost like a Vietnamese boat people scenario. There's like thousands of people thronged on this train uh, track trying to get onto two or three trains to take us home. And I'm standing there, and it's squashed, and it's tight, and it's really kind of scary. And the next thing I hear someone saying, Lads, lads, patch her over, patch her over. She's coming through. She's after getting a weakness. And I look up, and my mother is basically being crowd-surfed <laughs> across the throngs of people to the front. And I reach up to her, and I, I see her from behind, and I reach up and go, Mammy, Mammy, your shoe, your shoe. And she kind of grabs it from me as she's passing over my head. And I say to her, what, what am I to do? She's like, just get, get on the first train that's going to Tipperary. She said, I'll meet you there. And I'm like, I can't believe that my mother is actually kind of a rock star right now. And later on, she told me, actually, that she had, um, she'd faked being uh, sick so that she could get to the front of the crowd first. Uh, <laughs> And that's kind of it. And then later on, years, years later, she actually went on a uh, church choir outing to Rome and she got to meet John Paul I. And there's a photo that was taken of her shaking hands with him. And there's loads of people in the background, but she's shaking hands with him and she's just lit up. I mean, it's like any one of us ever trying to meet our hero. She's just so happy. So basically, I took the photo and photoshopped everyone out and wrote underneath it in a caption, it's just you and me, JP. <laughs> but I'll tell you, there aren't too many people who's, uh, who can claim that their mother made or met a legitimate saint. And that's my story. Thank you very much. You can see Fiona perform live in New York City Sunday, October 11th at her show, Sundays at 7, at the Irish Art Center. Our next show is this Thursday, September 24th, with two recent Emmy Award winners, Peter Gross from Veep and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and Josh Gondelman from Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Our following show will be Wednesday, October 21st. Both shows are at 7.30 at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City. For tickets, go to yumsthewordshow.com slash shows. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City. The podcast is produced by me, Robin Gelfenbein, and Alex Fulton. Special thanks to Vince Fairchild, Megan Deneen, Michael Cedar, Danny Artis, and of course, Auntie. The theme song is by Mark Radcliffe, and I'd like to wish all of my fellow Hebes an easy fast and a very happy new year. Thanks for listening. I'm Robin Gelfenbein, and until next time... 
Vablanjad. Vablanjad. Yum's the world.